Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. This is Danya. That's it. Yeah. Oh, oh. Checkity check. There it is. There it is. I was going to say, I feel like I'm in trouble. Danya Elise. <laughs> Danya, Danya Elise. Uh, also, this stool is like wonky. Danya looks so young. She looks like she could be my daughter, but she is my wife. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's weird. It's <laughs> not weird at all. Hey, just, just a note um, the membership class that we had scheduled for this afternoon is being postponed. So sorry for any of you that, that uh, wrecked your plans. But um, yeah. So just I think you should tell them why. Because I messed up? That's it? No! Oh my gosh, that is so not what I was thinking. Have any of you ever worked and worked and worked on something and then lost your document? Anybody? <laughs> Raise your hands. How sad is that? I feel bad for Isaac. I mean, he's like the most technologically adept person I know, and that happened to him. And I just felt terrible when he told me that yesterday. So yeah, I mean, oh. we're, we, there's a reason. Oh, and it's a sad reason. Can everybody just say, oh. Thank you. I know. Four. He worked really hard on that the, stuff. The, thank you for the, the sympathy, the forced sympathy that everybody gave me. Hey, uh, mine was real. Here's, oh, here's real. Good. Um, hey, we'd like for you to join the conversation this morning. Take out your cell phones. Um, and this is how this works. With your mobile device... You can join the conversation. It's anonymous. And there's two ways you can do it. You could go to pollev.com forward slash new hope, or you can text the word, one word, new hope, to the phone number 22333. Yeah. Oh, man, we, you won't be able to participate this way. Sorry. Bummer. Yeah, yeah exactly. There you go. Team Share up with, with a buddy. Team up with a buddy. Yeah, this is all anonymous. We're not like collecting your information. You're not signing up for some list where you're going to get annoying text messages or something like that. Nothing like that. But it's a way for us to participate together. And uh, so, yeah, we've done this before. Some of you are familiar. Some of you are finding your way there. And you'll have some time to do that. So here's the question for the first question today. Today is Donnie and Isaac's 18th anniversary. So where should we go to eat? Text in your ideas. What should we do? Pickles. Chang's Mon... Oh, I do like Mongolian Grill. Arby's. <laughs> we should have... They pickles. have the best cheese. Gamberettis. Gilgamesh. Oh. It's like from Lord... Caps. Annette's. Is that like a person or is that like... Go to Annette's house. Robert's Crossing. Okay. Venti's. Pirelli's. Some of the... Rudy's. <laughs> Uh, oh. oh, I do like I their do. cheddar biscuits. Thai. Let's go Thai food, no. Danya. Thai, please. I told the last service, I have been told before that I have adolescent taste buds, and I'm fine. Give me pizza. Give me burgers. Deli Mart. I like it. Yeah, get some JoJo's. Well, that's good. That's good. I hear it's good. Isn't that funny? You hear it's good. I do like mod. The in it's Spanish head. What does that even mean? Hong Kong house. I've never been there. Bentley's. I've heard of this. Yeah. Taco, Taco wagon. wagon. Portland City Grill is one of our favorite places on top of the U.S. Bank Tower. Or, oh, yeah. that's a drive. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Has to be organic. Somebody's bossing us around. Is there any way for us to get this list after service? Yeah, we have. Because yeah, I'm going to Google these bad daddies. These bad daddies. <laughs> Well, thank you. You can participate a little bit more in just a moment, but uh, while Danya's here, we want to take a minute. She's, we're not only married, she's also her children's pastor here, and, um, and so want to have a bit of a conversation with her, because we really care about the next generation, really do, and um, we're seeing some things that are, um, I, well, we just want to frame some of our expectation for the next generation and what we're doing around here. So, Danya, as you're overseeing our children's ministry um, what should we know about what you're seeing among this generation? Not just here at New Hope, but we kind of see some big cultural things. Okay, so good news first, right? Kids 
are like sponges. Mm. And no matter what culture is doing, there is something beautiful that God did when he created the child, that um, he created children to be um, like fertile soil, like Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 8, that um, we can plant seeds and the seeds can't help but grow. Mm, that is the good news. And it doesn't matter what's happening around us. Kids are kids. And it is, it is easy to tell them that God loves them. They yeah. believe it. Yeah. They just do. Yeah. Um, but culture is changing and culture is presenting challenges. And um, it doesn't matter if you're here in Salem or across the country over in Washington, D.C., the challenges that culture is bringing to the doorstep of the church are acute. Um, we have kids, and we're, we're, we're experiencing this here at New Hope as well. We, we have kids who are from um, divorced families and, and shared custody arrangements that prevents them from attending regularly. Um, we have screen addiction. That's mm. new. I mean, relatively in the last, you know, decade or so. Then, yeah. Screen addiction is a big deal, and it affects us. Mm. Um, we're seeing kids coming in with trauma uh, from abusive homes, behavioral issues. Um, it's, it's an interesting season, but not a hopeless season because God is doing great things. Yeah. God is doing great things in you. The Holy Spirit is enabling us to love on these kids mm -hmm. and show them God's love no matter what challenges they walk in the door with. Mm -hmm. So it is our heart to partner and partner well with families and parents, whatever the shape of the family looks like, to help kids discover God's love and discover more about who he is, even in the midst of all of these challenges. Yeah. Yeah, and we really want to support these families. And I think it's important for the church to recognize this. It's not like business as usual. Mm -hmm. For some of you, you know, you're a few years removed from raising kids. Um, there's a Gallup poll just done recently that said 70% of parents feel like parenting this generation is more difficult than previous generations. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I, I believe me, our generation is not just whining. We're dealing with some really profound pressures and a lot of division about how you should be a parent, what love is all about, what parenting is about, the technology aspect that's a part of that. It's really not business as usual. So, so church family, you need to know that as we rally around kids, we need you. We need you to rally with us and to give of your time and your energy to the next generation. If you ever feel any sort of nudge from the Holy Spirit, respond to that because kids need loving adults that serve them and show them the love of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and Isaac's going to talk about this more, and the book we're reading this summer will equip us toward this. But the, you know, the liturgy of our culture is not given toward families following Jesus, toward families shaping their lives around coming to church. Even, you know, I was thinking about this, and I added this to my notes. But the the sports liturgy that our our culture has is heavily invested in. It precludes many of our kids from regularly attending and experiencing encounters with the Lord with their friends and with other leaders who want to input into their life. So, yeah, we're, it's yeah. not business as usual. Yeah, it's, it sounds like the enemy to take a good thing and make it be a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening in our culture. And so we're, we're going to continue to, to um, just kind of ring the bell for the next generation. We're going to ring the bell, and you get to be a part of it. Yeah. So, um, so speaking of serving families... Um, some changes are coming with fall in terms of how the classrooms are going to be organized. Tell us a little bit of why and what's coming up. Okay, well, yeah, uh, you may have noticed that we, we have a crowd of kids coming into worship at 11 o'clock service. And I, I got to tell you, thank you. Thank you for welcoming them, for putting up with some of their little distracted moments, you know, because kids, kids are learning. They're growing, and they're, they're learning how to be a part of this, this the big room, as yeah. we might call it. You yeah. know, this is the big, the big room where the adults are, but you know what? They need to see themselves here, and you're making yeah. that happen. Yep. Um, but, yeah, we're going to be having some changes. One of the interesting dynamics that we have here at New Hope is that we have about 75% of our children attending second service. Where 25 only, 25 percent only attends at 9 a.m. And so we have a, a relatively small group at 9 a.m. And we're tr 
trying to figure out ways to creatively um, negotiate this dynamic of a, a huge population increase. Our classrooms aren't that big, um, and we do keep our great our grade school age kids together. So our first through fifth graders, for those of you that don't know, all go into one room, and that room is not big enough because sometimes we have more than 40 kids at the 11 a.m. service. So I've been thinking for probably about a year, thinking and talking and musing and getting perspective about how we can best serve families, best serve volunteers, best serve our kids. And um, I've come down to a decision that we're going to do some minor shifting of our age, um, our age boundaries for each classroom. You'll have more information about that. The change won't be until fall. The only thing that you need to know is that we are delaying our move up. And this is particularly important for those of you with kindergartners, that they will not move up into the clubhouse. Um, we're going to delay our move up until the end of summer so that we can make the adequate preparations for this age group. Um, fifth graders, I want to be very clear about this. Fifth graders are more than welcome to remain with us in the clubhouse during the summer, those, those kids who will be going into sixth grade. But they are also, so fifth graders really have it good. They also get to do all the middle school stuff. Their move up is not delayed. You can send your, uh, fifth, your incoming sixth graders into the middle school room. They get to attend the events, can go to youth, all the good stuff. So... That's the change that is coming up. Um, yeah. Great. Yeah. Thanks for leading and guiding us through and making those decisions on, on our behalf. It's really, it's really important. And you're doing a great job. It's not just... So this summer, we want our children's ministry to be amazing um, for these kids that come in. We want to serve every family really well. And I think there's some open slots for people to, to step in for um, a Sunday or two. So tell us a little bit more about how we can make children's ministry successful over the summer. Okay, so who's happy summer is here? Woo! I mean, it's kind of here. It was cold this week, I thought. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's exciting. Summer's fun. People go on vacation and, and have uh, lots of good family time, and, and we, we are so behind that. Um, sometimes volunteers want to take a, a chunk of time off in the summer, so uh, some of our regular volunteers won't be in the classroom as much this summer, which is totally understandable. We want them to have a break, right? Yeah. They're serving all year long. Um, we don't have a ton of gaps, um, but we do have some, and to that end, we are inviting parents uh, who are regularly attending, regularly able to check their kids in to partake of the ministry that we have available here to just um, fill out a little, a little questionnaire here. You can find these at the Kid Check Desk. Um, and, you know, really just serve a time or two over the course of the months of July and August, just to kind of fill in the gaps. We're not going to ask you to do any of the heavy lifting, so don't worry. We're not going to put you in charge of 40 clubhouse kids. <laughs> You'll just be paired with somebody who regularly serves, who knows the ropes already, and really just provide an extra set of hands just once or twice over the summer. We'll make all the difference in the world, make sure that we can continue to serve our kids to the best of our ability the way that we want to do all year long. Now, I want to say one thing. Isaac said this earlier, and I thought this was really good um, to me personally. <laughs> we Everything that we imagine or want for our kids and youth does not exist yet. Mm. We are building. We're always building. We're always asking ourselves how we can get better, how we can serve our kids well, because we do have a passion to reach the next generation. The, the years between birth to 18 are crucial. Why? Because kids are learning and building a worldview that they're going to start making really important decisions yeah. on. And as, we, as they launch, we have a 17-year-old. She's going to launch into the adult world next year, and we want to equip. We're not raising kids. We're raising adults. Yeah, and so good. we want to equip them as best as, as they can because really between the years of 18 to 25, some very important decisions for good or for evil are going to take place in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so we, we want to continue growing. We want to continue building. And we're committed to doing that here. So please know if you're dissatisfied in any way or you have ideas, we're open. We want to hear them. And also, it's not everything we ever dreamed either. We're working on it. Yeah. And this is personal to you because there was an intersection of your life with a church that embraced kids. 
Yeah, um, my sister and I started going to church without parents. We would walk down the road to a church that met in an elementary school gymnasium about two blocks from our house, and we started attending church before our parents started attending church. And um, it was crucial in my life. I should not be sitting here, and I want you to hear this. And there are kids and youth who probably are like me, coming in the doors, not really knowing much about God, not knowing anything about who they are, who God has designed them to be. And they're going to walk in the doors. And I'm telling you, the people that received my sister and I, who brought us in and who loved us, they changed our life. They changed the life of our family. And it doesn't take a special skill. It doesn't take anything more than a willing heart of somebody who loves Jesus to hug a kid, to tell them they're wonderful, to show them what it is. Because you know what? God in his infinite wisdom, God decided to use you and me. Hmm. I mean, do you ever just think, I don't know about that plan. (laughs) (laughs) I know I do. Um, But he decided that because he has made it to where we get to be a tangible expression of who he is. Hmm. As he's transforming us, we get to show that. We get to be a living, breathing example of that because he's in us. His spirit resides in us, equipping us to do that. I don't believe that there's anybody who couldn't work with kids. Mm. I don't believe that there's anybody who couldn't work with kids. And I'm not saying that because I need warm bodies in classrooms. Do we need warm bodies in classrooms? Yeah. But let me tell you this right now. A surrendered heart can do anything for the Lord. Mm. And kids are the easiest ones. Yeah. They just want to be loved. Yeah. Would you extend your hand towards Danya as we continue to pray over her and for our children's ministry? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would, you would continue to stir within Danya what you place there. Lord, a passion for the next generation because she was reached by a church that... Um, was that welcomed her and showed her love and showed her the pathway forward. And Lord, generation upon generation is being affected now because of that. And so as we endeavor to pay that forward, to provide space and place for families as they are following Jesus, um, we just pray that you give Danya wisdom. And as we envision the future, things that are not yet here, not yet happening, give us grace for the meantime. Give us your wisdom as we continue to roll out um, what uh, will be happening here with kids' ministry and every ministry in the church. We love you. Thank you for Donya and her leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Well, thanks, Craig. Uh, This morning, we get to introduce our summer book. Pick it up. It's right out in the lobby afterwards. $5. You can use a card or cash or check um, to uh, pick that up and follow along. And it uh, should be really good. Um, each, each week, most of the weeks, the message on Sunday will recap some of the stuff that we've read that week. There's a reading plan, everything, easy to follow along with. Uh, so, so do that. Yeah, so I want you to envision with me 17-year-old Isaac for a moment. I have to re- rewind some odd number of years to get to 17-year-old Isaac, 23 to be exact. Oh man, that's crazy to think, yeah. So when I was 17, I was uh, just as passionate as I am now with less restraint. <laughs> some of you might relate to my predicament and emotional disposition. I found myself at 17 um, arguing with my classmates about things that I really cared about. You know, evolution, abortion, and on one particular evening with my friend, parenting. Now, neither this 17-year-old girl or myself had kids, but like a lot of 17-year-olds, we had big opinions about things, and <laughs> doggone it, I was right. And so, uh, <clears throat> so you know, we, we started talking about spanking for some reason, and and at the time, you know, I, I was, you know, spanking is, you know, necessary. And, and don't lose me here. Like, if you have different views on spanking, I'm not, I'm just, I'm just telling you the topic that we were arguing about. And, and she said, uh, she said, well, spanking leads to child abuse. 
And I said, well, I was spanked and I wasn't abused. And her eyes kind of narrowed. She gave me one of these kind of, you know. And so, so then I said to her, well, spanking is biblical. And she wasn't, you know, a Jesus follower. And so she says, you know, that's the problem with you Christians. This is what she said. That's the problem with you Christians. If it's not in the Bible, you don't believe it. And I was suddenly like offended. <laughs> like Fraser Crane. I don't know if you watch Fraser at all, but I am wounded. <laughs> was my feeling. And so, you know, I was, I was mad. She's like, you disrespect the Bible. You're putting down all the things, you know, that I am passionate about. And so I stood up over her. This is my reaction. I stood up over her and I pointed my finger at this five foot one little nothing, 17 year old. And I said, if that's the way you want to believe, then you and the rest of the world can go to hell. That's what 17 year old Isaac said. I'll just remind you, we're talking about 17 year old Isaac. So grace for me. Some of you are just, you know, you're, you're judging me. And yeah, I just, I'll remind you that Paul the Apostle killed people before he, so. Jeez, man. Yeah, yeah. Those guys. Oh. Well, you may not be as dramatic, I hope not, as 17-year-old uh, as Isaac. But if you're a Christian, you may have felt that before, this feeling of feeling so disrespected about what you think or believe about the world. And if you're becoming a Christian or you don't know what you think about this faith thing, you may have heard of other Christians acting like that. Yeah. When, we're, when we feel invalidated, um, it's an understandable frustration that, that comes out. And we can find ourselves reacting in some really big ways. But obviously, my strategy as a 17-year-old was ridiculous. That's not the way to deal with it. As we talk more this morning and as we introduce this book, we're, we're thinking through the shifting culture that we are in. That some previously commonly held assumptions about the way the world is have shifted. And for those who are following Christ, it can create many of these moments of defensiveness and even anger about what is happening. We feel invalidated and we're struggling. And this book is helping us to think through how it is that we endure and even thrive through such a shift as this. So if you got your phone, please take that out again. And let's answer some questions together, give a little feedback and see where we're at. A um, couple of questions. The first one is this. Yes or no, in the past, our culture was more supportive of Christian values. So yeah, so just go ahead and vote, and then in just a moment here, um, I will put the results on the screen, and we can see where we're at. Keep those votes coming in. I feel like I'm on American Idol or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this is fairly overwhelming in here. Here's the results. Yeah. Yes or no, in the past, our culture is more supportive of Christian values. 95% of us, a large majority, um, say, say yes. Okay. Um, next question, and, and again, these are, you know, expressing your opinion or thought and uh, not setting anybody up for like a big, <laughs> oh yeah, I'll tell you, you know, we're not doing that. But here's, here's the next question. Yes or no? One of the best ways we can influence our culture is through electing Christian officials. And so, yeah, let's let those um, come through. And uh, there's a variety of opinions, obviously, but we'll get a little sense of the room. And also, this question helps us to think through some of our orientation and what the Christian life is about. Okay, the votes are in, and they're coming in. Yeah. Just over half, <laughs> and that will, could change, yeah. Just over half say, yeah, that is 
One of the best ways that we could influence our culture is having people that have Christian ideals that are making laws and legislating, etc. Um, but just center half of us think, well, maybe not. And again, we're not here to argue the issue, but just start thinking about how it is we perceive our influence in culture. And then we'll make some observations. Uh, the final question uh, you can weigh in on, yes or no, it is more difficult to be a Christian in America than it used to be. Yeah. Boats are coming in. There we go, yeah. A significant majority says, yeah. Seems to be that our culture has made it more difficult in today's day um, to be a Christ follower. So the first question and this last question kind of help to shape kind of what we think about this. Help to shape maybe the, the perception that we have that the culture is really shifting. Some feel that over the last 50 years that the, the rug is being t- pulled out from underneath your feet. Um, I would suggest that that feeling is really accurate. Culture has shifted hugely. And some of that, um, at first glance, can make it seem like it's, it's harder to be a Christian, um, that things, some things are against us, and, um, and so that can create some of that defensiveness and that question of like, how do we navigate this? And some of us try to navigate it on Facebook. Yeah, and, and you kind of, you may not sound like 17-year-old Isaac because there's no sound on Facebook, but you kind of look like 17-year-old Isaac, you know, with that kind of understandable angst and frustration. So it's interesting for me, I was thinking through um, Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul was writing, and he was under significant persecution most of his ministry life. He was actually ended up being beheaded because of his faith, um, endured massive trials and persecution. But he, he writes about some of this persecution in Romans 8, and then he says this. And it's a, it's a verse that's a little bit familiar to us. He says, no, despite all these things, and he's referring to the persecution that he's just listed, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And it's really interesting as we observe and feel the shifting culture and the tide being against us, and it's harder to be a Christian. It feels like things are becoming less Christian in a lot of different ways. We'll talk a little bit more about how that's shifting. It can, it can feel like, well, like we're defeated. But Paul, who experienced far more significant persecution than any of us are, he says that we are victorious. This passage in the older translations is rendered, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. More than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors walking in victory. And so some thoughts for us as we shape this, this conversation. If you're a victor, if you are in victory, you don't whine. Like, you know, I, I doubt the Toronto Rop- Raptors, you know, the city of Toronto is not whining after they won the NBA championship. Like, oh, man, yeah. Now, us Americans, seeing the Canadians steal the NBA crown from us, you know, we might have some things to whine about, but yeah, some things to say. Or whatever, I don't know. Right? Also, if you're in victory, like Paul says, we're in victory. You don't walk in fear. You don't walk in fear. And fear is really normal for us to experience as things are shifting and changing. But Paul says we're, we're more than victorious. We're more than conquerors. If you're in victory, you don't use anger. It's really fascinating to think about. You know, like if anger is becoming a common Christian response, it's very unbiblical. Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was eventually martyred, he says Anger does not produce the righteous, human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And he was suffering under intense persecution. And so if he is calling us to not be angry, then we have to really evaluate ourselves. Those who are more than conquerors don't resort to anger for the objective of the kingdom. 
And finally, those who are victorious don't grow bitter. So if whining, walking in fear, anger, and bitterness is a part of your Christian experience right now, um, it's an opportunity to, to bring that before the Lord and say, whoa, I'm missing something because this is becoming common to me. And it's understandable that as things are shifting, that we would have some of that experience, but we are, the overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us, Paul wrote, and then was beheaded. Yeah. So the world is changing, increasingly becoming post-Christian. Um, but what we'd like to suggest is that we are, we are being called to be a subversive minority. We certainly, the Christians have lost a lot of their formal influence and a lot of their power. And there's a lot to be said about that and the whys. And we'll get into a little bit more here. But, but really, in this day and age, what we're being called to, and um, John Tyson and Heather Grizzle, they call it to become a creative minority. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about. This is what they call the creative minority. So as we read through this book, this is what we're endeavoring and we're, we're finding and we're aspiring to. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships. Oh, I love that. There's not a lot of loyalty in our world anymore. But this is the kingdom. Knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Yes. Yes. And when we read the scriptures, we see Jesus helping us to anticipate that we are going to experience um, challenge. We will probably experience being the minority or out of the power position, and so it shouldn't surprise us. So as we go on this morning, we're going to, we're going to take a look at the words of Jesus, which he helps us to understand this, where we're at. And then we're going to look at some church history and, and evaluate some of the dynamics that are taking place, and then um, that'll help us to know why we are learning this and growing this. And through this series, you're going to learn more and more of the values that are driving us forward as we endeavor to become the kind of community that can change the face of the world. Um, so yeah, so first we'll, we'll read the words of Jesus in John 15, and then we'll take a look at some historical stuff. So John 15, John 14, 15, 16, and 17 are John's recounting of some of the, the, the last words of, of Jesus. It's the week of his betrayal. And it's kind of like if you ever stayed up late talking to a friend and you're having these long conversations. So just picture that for like a couple of weeks leading to Jesus, his death, and then his resurrection. These final conversations, really important. And John captures a lot of them. And so we'll pick up and listen in to one of these conversations or one of these topics that Jesus addresses. So John 15, and uh, it's on the screen. And I'm going to turn there in my... Bible? Okay. Picking up in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, this is his final instructions, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer a part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, um, they would listen to you. Hmm. They would listen to you. Okay. They will do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to you, but now they have no excuse for their sin. I mean, can you imagine like being the disciples and hearing this and being like, man, this is, is kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. Jesus goes on. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. Then Jesus says, but I will send you the advocate, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. 
He will come to you from the Father, and he will testify about me. And you must also testify about me, because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. So Jesus, he's helping his followers to know that they should anticipate being rejected. They should anticipate being severely rejected. You know, he's about to be crucified. And um, the early followers, they certainly did experience the same kind of suffering that Jesus did. Ten of the 11 apostles um, were martyred. And they were killed because of their faith. Um, They didn't just die early deaths, but because of their faith and their refusal to give up their faith, they were killed at the hands of the authorities. Only uh, the... Only John, who penned these words, escaped. But even he, he had boiling oil poured over him, tortured, trying to kill him. He didn't die. And then he was relegated to the island of Patmos, which going to an island sounds great, but it was like a work camp. It's a work camp. So think concentration camp. That's the kind of dynamic. So Jesus says, they're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you like they did me. And that is certainly what happened. And uh, so we'll look at a little bit of frame of reference around the what happened in the early church here. So Jesus' death and resurrection, somewhere around A.D. 30. In A.D. 67, the apostle Paul is beheaded. Um, about A.D. 70 is when John writes the Gospel of John. So the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before. John is the latest writing one. And so as John is writing what we just read, as he's recalling the words of Jesus and he's putting that down for other believers to hear it, he must have been like, oh man, yeah, that's totally what we're experiencing. Because the emperor Nero, I was, I was dancing. The emperor Nero was in charge at this time. And Nero was, he was just a bad guy. Um, he was the emperor, and he is torture and, the, and his persecution of the early Jesus followers was infamous. Um, for example, at garden parties, he would um, put Christians in these baskets, and then he would elevate them, and then they would douse them with um, oil, and then they would light those baskets on fire to provide light for his garden parties so the party could keep going. So Nero's like a bad guy, and he had it out for the Christians. So as John is writing this, he's like, yeah, this is what is happening. And as the other New Testament writers are encouraging them to endure persecution and to, like James says, consider it joy when you encounter various trials, these are the kind of trials they're talking about. Yeah, isn't that just gnarly? But even though it faced intense persecution... The early church, they were known as the way because they were followers of Jesus who said, I'm the way. They were called the way. They kept growing. More and more people were becoming Christians. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing to think about because we would think intense persecution is all against them. They didn't have any political power, you know, yada, yada. So... I want to do some timeline here over the first 300 years, and there's lots of persecution. So when you think about the early church, anybody t- anytime somebody says the early church, I want you to think lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. Because the persecution was not just that their friends didn't like them. They were thrown to the lions. They were thrown to the tigers. They were thrown to the bears. Oh my. <laughs> that is dramatic. Actually, um, one of the things that was done is that they were, they were sewn, early Christians were sewn into animal skins and then thrown out where there's other live animals that would chase them down and tear them to shreds, all for the entertainment of the emperor. I mean, this is the kind of dynamic that we're talking about. One of the uh, a commentator I listened to recently, he was reflecting on some of the early ecumenical councils. That's the like the Christian leaders from around the Mediterranean coming together for conference to talk through some important theological stuff. He says, you have to imagine that it might have looked more like a military vet reunion because so many of them came in missing appendages and hands and eyes because of being tortured, people trying to drive them away from their faith that they would not relent of. So the early church, lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. But it's amazing what happened. 
That's right. It does remind us of Wizard of Oz. That's right. It's amazing what happened. We would think, oh, man, I hope they were able to survive that and get through to the you know, better days. Well, the better days were happening already. So, A.D., you know, 30, about the time when Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected, there's 120 Christians or so. You know, after Jesus appeared to the 500, there's about 120 who gathered in the room waiting for the filling of the Holy Spirit. So that's, you know, the church. And then the Holy Spirit came. And early on, there's 3,000 that were added to the number. And then a little later, there's 5,000 that were added to the number. But the Roman Empire population is about 4 million here. And we're going to see some things as we walk through a little bit. So by AD 100, the Roman Empire was growing. They were conquering territories, and so there's more population um, happening. Now there's about 100,000 Christians. Now these, these numbers are rough. You know, we can't precisely say, but as we make observation about the historical record, you know, these are rough numbers. So there's about 100,000 Christians at this point. So this is becoming a big deal. By AD 200, the Roman Empire has grown significantly during that time, and now there's about 4 million Christians. So I don't know the math on that, but that's close to 10%, right? Close to 10%. By AD 300, and we're going to make some observations about what happened right at 300, 13 million Christians. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. Tense persecution. But now 28% of the population of the Roman Empire is Christian. That's fascinating to think about. These people were significantly oppressed, did not have power, did not have position, did not have permission to be Christians, and yet the church grew. Fascinating. So right up until 300, this persecution was intense. Um, emperors Diocletian and Galerius were emperors just before Constantine was emperor, and we're going to talk about what Constantine did. They issued a series of four edicts just at the end of, um, in the you know, 290s or so. Um, and these edicts said that they would release Christians from prison if they would sacrifice to the Roman gods. They refused, and the result was more torture and more enslavement. More churches and scriptures were burned. Galerius, by the way, on his deathbed, issued an edict of toleration for the Christians because he was baffled <laughs> by how the Christians, through that persecution, were praying for him and showing humility to him in the face of that terrible persecution. So they were a testament that there's something bigger going on than just their perceived need for justice in that moment. Wow. So now there's 13 million of them by AD 300, and that is changing the landscape of the Roman Empire. And so Constantine, who became emperor, he changed a lot. A lot changed here. In AD 313, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan. It's incredibly famous. You've probably heard other people refer to it. Christianity now is not only legal, but it becomes the official um, religion of the Roman Empire. This is a major shift. This is a major shift in terms of what happens. So there's a variety of opinions about why Constantine did that. Some, some say that he had a true conversion experience and he kind of told that story. Um, others think that he did it for political gain because there were so many Christians to get the Christians kind of for him or on his side, so to speak. That's why he converted or created, you know, legal to be uh, a Christian. But it changed a lot. A lot has changed since then. And that moment um, changed a lot of the face of Christianity. Now Christianity became official and now had power and had the nod and the thumbs up of the government, and there became the enmeshment of government with the Christian faith. And a lot of things that were good happened. I mean, we can make some observations about the good that happened as we live in the shadow of this edict still. Western culture, since this edict, has been heavily influenced by Christian belief, morals, and ways. Um, things like women and children being valuable, 
In the Roman Empire, if, you, if your wife gave birth to a daughter and you didn't want a daughter, you would just leave her outside to die. That was normal. Their thought was it was more merciful to let someone die that didn't, wouldn't want to be, wasn't wanted. That was normal in the Roman Empire. And Christians became known for going and rescuing and adopting those children. So children were, began to be elevated. You know, we just talked about serving kids. This is a very Christian idea. It's a very Christian idea. So um, Jesus said, let the children come to me. And we're like, yeah, of course, the children. That's, Jesus loves the children. That was a different thought in that day. And so Western culture has hugely been influenced by our value of kids, of women. Some people think that Christianity is like anti-women, but the, the idea that we have a view to support and bring equality to women's rights is a Christian idea. That's where this started. Others have adopted it, but it started with Jesus who was interacting with women totally against the social mores of the day. It was furthered by Paul the Apostle who was a man's man in the Jewish tradition confronted by Jesus who then penned, now there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's not slave or free, male or female, we're all one in Jesus Christ. So Western culture has been hugely influenced and this is good by Christianity and through the formal ways that it has been uh, influenced. Ironically, freedom of religion. Like Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. And that might make us think that the Christian you know, expression would be to not tolerate other religions. But freedom of religion is a very Christian idea because God who created us with free will choice, there's not coercion within the pure Christian gospel. There's invitation. And so tolerating where other people come from, freedom of religion being embedded into our Western democracies is a very Christian idea. There's no other system in the world that has created that kind of dynamic. That is the good of Christianity. And we see Christian ethic and vantage points and worldviews affecting one of the best governments that has ever been on the face of this earth, the United States of America. So much good that has come into Western culture, apart, in part because of the Edict of Milan. But there's a downside too. The downside is that the Christian begins to believe that their source of influence comes through formally recognized systems of government or through powers of this world or in the way that governments influence the world through force and coercion. And so those things become conflated. So much so that in St. Augustine, in the early church, began to advocate for a thing called just war. Just war was never a thought of the early church. No, no early Christian would sign up to be part of the military because of their conviction not to kill. But as it became conflated with government, there was this idea that we have to use the means of the government to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's this distortion that has begun to happen. And we've lived in that. You guys following so far? Okay, <laughs> so much here. Okay, so... The Edict of Milan gave full toleration to the Christian faith, ordering that all places of worship taken from Christians should be restored without delay or charge, that any loss they had suffered should be made good, and that Christian ministers should be released from all burdensome municipal offices. So this is what happened. And the world changed, and Christianity changed. And we are at another pivot point of change is where we are at. The, the, like never before within Western history, the Christian worldview is not the dominant worldview. And is increasingly not. Um, and that can be scary, but there's also some good things. The scary parts. Here's what I mean. Previously held common assumptions about morality in relationships are radically shifting. Um, there was a common thought within Western culture about how families should be, about a sexual ethic. Even if you didn't believe in Jesus, there was an idea that sexuality is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. That was, that was kind of commonly held. That has shifted radically in the last 50 years. It's amazing how far our sexual ethic has changed within our culture. Here's another thing that is changing. 
relativism is becoming the starting point. Um, relativism that, you know, you have a truth and I have a truth and there's not a really objective truth. It's just whatever you feel, whatever you perceive about what is happening. My truth may not be your truth. That's obviously very dangerous. An abdication of Christian morality and Christian truth, it, it ultimately hurts families, hurts people. You know, God doesn't have a way of life for us so that we're constrained and constricted. He has a way of life, including our sexual ethic, because a pure sexual ethic breeds and breathes life into the world. And anything outside of it ultimately hurts people. So God wants us to be living, flourishing. Um, the danger of relativism is that truth is decided by popularity. Truth being decided by popularity. That's very dangerous. Because you know who is really in favor of Nazism? The majority of Germans. We would say, whoa, 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 whoa. It has to be something else. Yes, God's eternal truth has to be the center of everything. These realities in terms of the shift that we are experiencing right now, like you could probably relate to them and you even feel them a little bit. It's uncomfortable and you're just kind of, these realities can make us react. But we're being called to be this Christian minority. Since 8300, Christians have had official power and that is changing. That is changing. We're going to become more like what the early church was. Not formal power, not recognized. A hugely pluralistic society that does not listen to our view about things. But the good news is the growth rate, you see the growth rate of the early church? People becoming Christians? The New Testament was written to people in oppression. It makes sense to people in oppression. It makes less sense to people in power. And so, man, the best is yet to come. And God has asked you and I to live in this era. I am full of excitement for this. It's like, oh, man, Lord. So we're being called to be this creative minority. But that can be scary. Tyson and Grizzle in their introduction, um, they reflect on how our reactions can be. And some of this is expressed on social media. The further out of the public square we are pushed, in other words, our opinion isn't as welcome, the angrier and more frantic our rhetoric becomes. Like 17-year-old Isaac. <laughs> It is as though, out of a fear of being forgotten, we seek to span our growing distance from the center with volume and intensity rather than engaging with intimacy. This is powerful. But if we are not careful, we will not be seen as bearers of good news, which as ambassadors of Christ we are, but rather as ideological warriors seeking to force a Christian theocracy on a resistant nation. The early church did not seek to mobilize or weaponize or coerce the Roman government into subjugation, but served in Jesus' name and were a testament, a signpost to a way that was the way of life. And it began to change the world. This is the era that God has asked for you and I to be in. Jesus was at his best when he was oppressed. God's love shone so brightly when his own son was taken to the ultimate place of oppression, the Roman crucifixion. God was able to show his true nature in the face of oppression. When the world wanted to Strike back when the world would want to strike back. God showed mercy. Hmm. God has asked you and I to live in this age and to navigate this complex and changing world. And uh, he, by his spirit, I think, is giving us everything that we need. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult. But the early church was noted for being reliant upon the Holy Spirit. And increasingly, we're following... Holy Spirit, where are you taking us? Lead us through and give us the wisdom. And what we find is that the Holy Spirit is doing exactly what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is leading us back to truth, which is Jesus Christ. Over and over again, pointing us back to Jesus. And not just what he did on the cross for us, but the way in which he brought change into the world. 
So as we are living out the creative minority, I, I have a, a picture that I want us to think about, and it gives us an example. This is Rosa Parks. And Rosa, as you might be familiar, refused to go to the back of the bus when the civil rules at the time were that black people had to be deferential to white people in a way that was totally dehumanizing. And she lived her conviction. She walked it out. And in her civil disobedience, she created a, she helped to create a massive conversation that ultimately would lead to cultural change because she just walked out her conviction. And I am so grateful that the leader of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, even in the face of huge pressure to resort to violence, always refused it. He refused it because he knew that civil disobedience and peaceful disagreement would ultimately lead to change as we're walking this out. But the tit-for-tat fighting back and forth and angry rhetoric just going this way and that way was going to lead to more of the same, which has been the course of history. And that way of changing the world, he got exactly from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who uttered no word in his defense. Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to bring peace between God and man and to bring peace between men who are divided against each other. And the way was the most diverse community of people. They were beginning to ask in the early church questions that nobody was asking. How do you combine these disparate races and ethnicities together? How do you make one new community? Their picture was God is creating a new heaven and he's creating a new earth and we get to be a part of it. And the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts, is the Holy Spirit bringing unity to people that were otherwise opposed to each other. And so as we walk this out and we become this creative minority, it is our hope that you and I, we all feel great hope and encouragement that God is with us. And he's doing something here. But it does take um, a bit of a change. In the intro, Tyson and Grizzle, they quote Karl Barth. Karl Barth is considered to be, many say he's the preeminent theologian of the 20th century, much of his theology was radically formed in the lead up to World War II and the aftermath of World War II when he saw that the governments are not the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. And this is what he says about the church. The church exists to set up in the world a new sign, which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. Listen, contradicts the world in a way that is full of promise. Sounds like Jesus who has said, come to me, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I've come that you might have life and have it in the full. And the church, this tightly knotted together community, exists to be the signpost of God's goodness and faithfulness in the world. So this summer, as we read this book and as we wrestle through And we're going to learn more about being this creative minority. And we hope that you see in the things that we are providing and stimulating here, these values put into practice. An opportunity for connection and community and commitment and loyalty and service to one another and generosity. Here are the six things that they will reflect on this summer. Here's the chapters. Covenant, radical commitment to each other. Makes me so excited because our Christians have lost sight of that when that was one of their signposts in the early church. Number two, narrative. We live out a better story. We'll talk about the full story of the gospel. Our ethics, a distinct moral vision. There's no doubt that the moral vision that God has given to the Christ follower brings life and wholeness. Number four, practices that are counterformative. You'll hear some of the language that we're already utilizing around here about how we change and transform. Authority, a humble alternative allegiance. Um, we'll talk about that. And then participation, exerting redemptive influence. Believing, that, that basically means believing 
God made a good world. He made good humans. We broke some things along the way, but God is returning his goodness through us and we get to participate with the redemption of all things, the reconciliation of all things, bringing good to this good world. So a couple of questions for you um, and then we'll receive our share offering in just a moment. The first question is this. What if no Christians held public office? Who would be the Christian witness? Yeah, exactly. Elena's got it. That's, that's good for us to wrestle with. The next question, um, as we quote Karl Barth, that, that phrase radically dissimilar, radically different, reflect on your own life and ask yourself, what aspect of your life is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner? And I think, you know, like we're probably going to be confronted a little bit like, wow, we're a lot like the world. And that's, that's okay to start there and to be uncomfortable, not in a pl- place of shame or condemnation, but to say, God, help me. Help me move forward. And t- to recognize where we are not being that signpost to the world. The third, one of the radically dissimilar early markers of Christians was their generosity towards the poor. In ancient culture, and it was certainly true in the Roman Empire, if you were poor, it was because you deserved it. It was your lot in life. The gods were mad at you. And so the poor were tolerated, but rarely helped. But the early church became known for how they would serve the poor, of how they gave validity to people that had no means or little means. That was incredibly different. Now, in our day and age, that's common, like we care about the poor, but that, again, that's a Christian idea. And they were radically dissimilar with how, from the culture around them in terms of how they saw the poor. If you read the letters in the New Testament, there's several times where they're being warned, if you favor somebody because they're more wealthy, a curse be on you. If you favor someone more wealthy, you hate your brother or sister, then God's love is not in you. The early church was saying, A signpost is our heart for the poor. And so an opportunity for us today is to give towards this community in Guatemala who's rich in some ways that we don't have, but they're poor in that they can't construct without our help a healthcare center that will care for the 135 families that are part of the community. As we give this morning, the question for you, will you give in a way that even a good-hearted culture like ours would find to be radical? It's my hope that we surpass our $8,000 goal. I'm sure we will. And that we raise enough funds to fund the next several projects that we're going to be doing with Shao. <clears throat> that we are using our resource, whatever that is, to change that community that is suffering as a result of a civil war that was propagated by the governments of the world. Yeah. So... Those are some questions. So we have a choice. As the world is shifting, we can be like 17-year-old Isaac (laughs) and angry and yelling and stomping out and making a dramatic, you know, show of nothing. Yeah, exactly. Or we can be like the early church. They were known as little Christs, little Jesuses. We can become this community that is bonded together in love where grace and mercy and acceptance flow well, where our collective resource can begin to change the world no matter who is for us or against us. That's the choice that we can make. And so um, it's obviously our encouragement that we choose to be a creative minority. Ushers, will you come forward? We're going to receive this special offering for Shao, again, that envelope that is on the chair that you found, you can give there. Also, if you didn't bring a checkbook and you want to give online, if you follow our website, inewhope.org, and then navigate to the giving site, there's a drop-down for Shao itself, and you can give that way too. Uh, I look forward to giving you a good report next week of how much um, we raise for this healthcare center. I'll pray over us and as we give, and then James is going to lead us in a final song. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just thank you. We want to be a part of your kingdom and what it really is. 
And as we encounter the difficulties of today, the shifting culture, Lord, I, I just pledge on all of our behalf that we want to do this well. And we want to, Lord, live out what you're inviting us to. Um, Lord, we may not see the amazing fruitfulness of the early church, but we pray for it and we ask for it because we want more people to find and follow your son, Jesus. Um, Lord, over what we give today, thank you for the generous hearts. Thank you for the hearts of compassion and solidarity that are merging as we partner with this community. We pray over the leaders of Sheo. We ask that you would give them wisdom for food for hungry. Lord, as they continue to help Sheo lead forward and for our team that is being built to go in October. We love you. We're committed to you. We ask for your blessing in our life so that we can be a testament to the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for giving. Feel free to give and then sing with us and James will dismiss us.